got a cop motor, a 440 cubic inch plant. It's got cop tires, cop suspension, cop shocks. It's a model made before catalytic converters, so it'll run good on regular gas. What do you say? Is it the new blues mobile or what? Fix a cigarette lighter. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. Are you the police? No, ma'am. We're musicians. We're on a mission from God. Three orange whips. It's almost nine o'clock. We've got to go to work. 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. A ponderous comic monstrosity, the Washington Post called it. Newsweek said it was desperately unfunny. The Los Angeles Times referred to it as a $30 million wreck. Still, the Blues Brothers tops many Chicagoans' lists of their favorite films shot mainly here in the Second City and most certainly is a huge part of Chicago history. Today, June 20th, 2020, marks the 40th anniversary of the release of the much-loved film. I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast. Today we're going to look at the Blues Brothers, not just the making of the movie, but the creation of the iconic characters known as Jake and Elwood Blues, and their indelible mark on pop culture and Chicago history. John Adam Belushi was born in 1949 to Albanian parents on Chicago's west side in the Humboldt Park neighborhood, but raised in Wheaton, Illinois, about 30 miles due west of downtown Chicago, along with three siblings. A little about Wheaton, it is known for being one of the most conservative suburbs of Chicago. It is home to the Harvard of Evangelical Schools, as some have called it, Wheaton College, known for being a destination school for devout Christian students seeking an elite liberal arts education. One famous Wheaton College alumnus, Billy Graham, even has the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center named after him. After Prohibition ended in 1933, Wheaton was one of the few area towns that remained dry, largely due to the influence of the town's religious conservatives. According to city council records, Wheaton did not allow restaurants to serve alcohol until 1985. A star athlete at Wheaton Central High School, Belushi was also into music at a young age, playing drums and singing a band called The Ravens. The band recorded a song called Listen to Me Now and a cover of the Kingsman's Jolly Green Giant at a studio in Chicago, pressing 40 copies they gave away to friends and family. Interestingly, a small label called Alona's Dream reissued that record in 2011 as a limited run of 198, two of the intended 200 were incorrectly pressed. The Ravens broke up when Belushi enrolled at College of DuPage, a junior college not far from Wheaton. Belushi later started his own comedy troupe in Chicago called the West Compass Trio, which got him the attention of Bernard Solens, the founder of the Second City Improv Theater, which Belushi joined in 1971. After two years at Second City, Belushi and his girlfriend Judy Jacklin moved to New York so Belushi could perform in the National Lampoon magazine stage production Lemmings alongside Chevy Chase and Christopher Guest. The writer-director of Lemmings was Tony Hendra, who fans of the film This Is Spinal Tap will know as band manager Ian Faith. It was a production that was scheduled to run six weeks and went instead for ten months in no small part due to Belushi's growing popularity. 
Belushi, Chevy Chase, and Christopher Guest then signed on with the National Lampoon Radio Hour, along with a few other performers whose names you may recognize. Bill Murray, Richard Belzer, Gilda Radner, Harold Ramis, and others. Daniel Edward Aykroyd was born in 1952 in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Raised Catholic, he intended to be a priest until the age of 17. He studied criminology and sociology before dropping out of university, dabbled in comedy, and eventually joined Second City in Toronto, which is where he met John Belushi, who had come to Canada in 1973 looking for talent for the National Lampoon Show. A lifelong fan of blues music, Aykroyd was playing blues records one night while Belushi was over. Belushi, who leaned more toward hard rock of the day, stopped to listen. This is a nice record, Belushi said. What is it? Aykroyd replied, a local blues band, the Down Child Blues Band. Belushi, blues, huh? I don't listen to too much blues. After a moment's silence, Aykroyd said, John, you're from Chicago. In the spring of 1975, Belushi and Aykroyd sign on to appear in a new weekly TV show called Saturday Night Live. During production of the show, Aykroyd mentions an idea he's working on about, quote, two classic recidivist American characters. It's based on a love of the city of Chicago and the music that came out of there, end quote. According to Howard Shore, SNL's musical director from 1975 to 1980, it was Shore who suggested, quote, you should call yourselves the Blues Brothers. While some point to a January 17, 1976 SNL appearance of Belushi and Aykroyd performing I'm a King Bee in bee costumes as part of the Howard Shore and his all-bee band as the first appearance of the Blues Brothers, this was not the Blues Brothers. That would come just over two short years later. In 1977, while in Eugene, Oregon, filming Animal House while on break between SNL's second and third seasons, John Belushi met 25-year-old blues musician Curtis Salgado. According to Salgado's bio at CurtisSalgado.com, the two spent hours listening to old blues records, and Belushi used this experience to create the Blues Brothers characters. Salgado went on to play in Robert Cray's band. He, meaning Salgado, sure turned John on to blues music, Aykroyd is quoted as saying. He steeped him in blues culture. I listened to him for my own harmonica practice. On April 22, 1978, Steve Martin returned to Saturday Night Live for his fifth time as host. Fifth, by the way, in less than two years. His musical guest, as Paul Schaefer introduced them... I'm Don Kirshner, and welcome to Rock Concert. In 1969, Marshall Checkers of the legendary Checkers Records called me on a new blues act that had been playing in small, funky clubs on Chicago's South Side. Today, with the help of Nessie Wexler, Jerry Erdogan, and the staff of Pacific Records, their manager, Maury Daniels, and with the support of fellow artists Curtis Salgado and the Cray Band, they are no longer an authentic blues act, but have managed to become a viable commercial product. So now, let's join Jolly XJ and his silent brother Elwood, the Blues Brothers. 
The Blues Brothers open the show with Hey Bartender and return much later in the broadcast with I Don't Know. On that same episode, Martin performs his song King Tut. Blues Brothers band saxophonist Blue Lou Marini, nicknamed Blue by Dan Aykroyd, by the way, can be seen as a pharaoh painted gold stepping out of a sarcophagus to play the solo in King Tut. By June of 1978, Aykroyd and Belushi were negotiating with Warner Brothers for a record contract. They eventually signed with Ahmet Erdogan, the co-founder and president of Atlantic Records, the same Ahmet Erdogan credited with launching the careers of Ray Charles and Led Zeppelin. In July of 1978, syndicated Hollywood columnist Marilyn Beck reported Belushi and Aykroyd were in New York rehearsing for an upcoming tour as the Blues Brothers and had been added to the bill of the Steve Martin Fall Shows at the Los Angeles Universal Amphitheater, which had already sold out. September 8, 1978, the Blues Brothers opened for 33-year-old Steve Martin for nine consecutive nights at the Universal Amphitheater. Martin had finally broken through as a comedian with his A Wild and Crazy Guy album and routine of the same name, and his hit song, King Tut. Martin's album on Warner Brothers Records by then had surpassed sales of two million copies. The amphitheater could accommodate 5,200 audience members at that time, giving the Blues Brothers a chance to perform live in front of 45,000 fans over the nine nights. Saturday, November 18, 1978, Carrie Fisher hosts SNL with musical guests The Blues Brothers. Fisher would later appear in the Blues Brothers movie, credited as the mystery woman with a connection to Jake Blues, the Belushi character. The cold opening of that show was Garrett Morris introducing the Blues Brothers, who performed Sam and Dave's Soul Man and returned later with I Got Everything I Need, Almost, and B-Movie Boxcar Blues. Record stores all across the country got an early Christmas gift when Briefcase Full of Blues, the first album from the Blues Brothers, was released on November 28, 1978. As anticipated, it is a live album featuring songs from the Los Angeles Universal Amphitheater shows, opening for Steve Martin two months earlier. The album went to number one on the Billboard Top 200 chart and became one of the best-selling blues albums of all time. I put a little asterisk next to blues. Belushi and Aykroyd, as the Blues Brothers, closed out 1978 by opening for The Grateful Dead, along with new riders of the Purple Sage, at the closing of the legendary Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco in front of 5,400 people. Tickets were $30, about $100 today, and included a catered breakfast. The show went well into New Year's Day. After the Blues Brothers played their set, they moved their group to an after-hours party at a mansion on Fulton Street, occupied by Jefferson Airplane, that lasted through the night. According to writer William Nodal Cedar Jr. in the February 5, 1979 Washington Post, with their album Briefcase of Blues at number one, the Blues Brothers turned down a one-night show in front of 70,000 people at the Superdome during Mardi Gras, that gig would have netted them $60,000, about $212,000 in today's money. It was said at the time, due to their commitments to SNL and filming the Steven Spielberg movie 1941, they could not make schedules work to play that show. 
After they finished filming 1941, Belushi and Aykroyd hunkered down with John Landis, hot after directing Animal House, to develop the Blues Brothers movie. Dan Aykroyd, who had never written a script before, turned in a 324-page draft. For reference, a rule of thumb is one page of script equals one minute of movie. John Landis dug in to pare the script down to a more reasonable length in just three weeks. Because Belushi had become a hot property with Animal House, he would be paid $500,000, Aykroyd $250,000. It should be noted Mayor Richard J. Daley, Chicago's mayor from 1955 until his death in 1976, that's 21 years, folks, uh, was said to be so displeased over how Chicago was portrayed in Haskell Wexler's 1969 film Medium Cool which documents the 1968 Democratic National Convention, that he insisted someone in his office read all scripts before approving movie productions, something they rarely did. It isn't that no movies were ever made under Daly's watch. Uh, After all, Brian De Palma's The Fury filmed in Chicago the year before, but large-scale productions rarely got a green light. With Daly's death while in office three years earlier, the film production crew thought they might have a chance. Christopher Borelli's June 2010 piece in the Chicago Tribune detailed the meeting between newly elected Mayor Jane Byrne, sitting stone-faced behind her desk in her office, and a sweaty, suit-wearing John Belushi with Aykroyd waiting outside in the hall. At that meeting, Belushi said to the mayor, I know how Chicago feels about movies. Byrne nodded. Belushi said, instead of the studio throwing a big, expensive movie premiere, they would like to donate some money to Chicago orphanages. How much money? Byrne asked. Belushi responded, $200,000. She nodded again. And so he kept talking, Byrne recalled. Finally, I just said, fine, but he kept going. So again, I said, look, I said, fine. He said, wait, we also want to drive a car through the lobby of Daly Plaza, right through the window. I remember what was in my mind as he said it. I had the whole 11th Ward against me anyway, and most of Daly's people against me. They owned this city for years, so when Belushi asked me to drive a car through Daly Plaza, the only thing I could say was, be my guest. He said, we'll have it like new by the morning. I said, look, I told you yes. And that's how they got my blessing. In town scouting locations and preparing for the beginning of filming, it was reported the entire crew was staying at the Astor Tower Hotel in Chicago at 1300 North Astor Street in the Gold Coast neighborhood. Not long after, that building was converted into condos. On August 3, 1979, the Blues Brothers performed opening night on the main stage at Chicago Fest, a huge summer event that was, at the time, held at Navy Pier. Their appearance was requested by then-Mayor Jane Byrne and was kept quiet for fear of an unruly mob. The Blues Brothers shared a stage with John Prine and Muddy Waters. According to writer Lynn Emmerman in the August 9, 1979 Tribune, Belushi and Aykroyd established their own hideaway at a dilapidated coach house bar off Wells Street. More of a speakeasy. Quote, we needed a place where we could go to cool out to get out of the public eye after we'd put in a day's filming, Aykroyd explained. He went on to say they couldn't get a liquor license on such short notice, so they give it away. He explained the difficulties of filming when huge crowds show up to their shoot locations, but said they were happy to be home in Chicago. Quote, where else could we hobnob with the mayor one day and destroy 135 police cars the next? End quote. 
Members of the band Eagles in town to play Chicago Stadium in October of 1979 as part of their The Long Run Tour stopped by the Blues Brothers Bar after their show. Using amps and equipment at the bar, Eagles guitarist Don Felder, Joe Walsh, and special guest Jackson Brown backed up Belushi and Aykroyd in front of the bar crowd, with Belushi switching off on drums with Eagles tour percussionist Joe Vitale. Chicago-area filming locations included Grant Park, Daly Plaza, Maxwell Street, the Dixie Square Mall in Harvey, Illinois. That's the one that they drive through. Uh, The far west suburb, West Chicago, the northern suburb of Wakanda, Park Ridge, the 95th Street Bridge, Joliet, and many other locations. There are also a number of scenes not shot in the Chicago area. No need to look for them, uh, including the Bob's Country Bunker scene that was on the Universal Backlot in Los Angeles. The exterior of the Palace Hotel Ballroom was actually the South Shore Cultural Center at 71st Street and South Shore Drive in Chicago. The South Shore Cultural Center is also the site of the wedding reception of former Illinois Senator-turned-President of the United States, Barack Obama, and Michelle Obama on October 3, 1992. It became a Chicago landmark on May 26, 2004. The interior where that big concert scene takes place is the Hollywood Palladium on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, California. The Blues Brothers movie pumped an estimated $12 million, more than $42 million in today's money, into the local economy during the three and a half months crews were in the area. The film originally budgeted at $17.5 million at a time when the average film budget was $8 million, fell behind schedule. When finished, the budget had a balloon closer to $32 million. According to Bob Woodward's book, Wired, when John Landis and Universal presented the first two-and-a-half-hour cut, which included an intermission to theater owners, the theater owners pushed back as long movies mean less screenings per day. Landis went back and cut another 20 minutes, getting it down to two hours, ten minutes. Some theater owners thought this was a, quote, black movie, end quote. One theater owner told John Landis he wouldn't book the film in a fancy part of Los Angeles because it would bring in blacks. Ah, 1970s racism. While most films of the day would have been booked into 1,400 screens or more, the Blues Brothers never played on more than 584 screens. On June 20th, 1980, the film is released. Quote, What is a little startling about this movie is somehow it all works, wrote the Chicago Sun-Times Roger Ebert, giving it three out of four stars. There is even room in the midst of the carnage and mayhem for a surprising amount of grace, humor, and whimsy. The Chicago Tribune film critic Gene Siskel was even more enthusiastic, writing, Quote, The Blues Brothers is the best movie ever made in Chicago, end quote. The opening weekend box office take was not great, making $4.8 million in those 584 theaters. It picked up steam and ended up making slightly more than $115 million, which is a little over $357 million in today's money. $57 million of that was domestic, and $58 million was at the international box office. 
Money made from all the home media sales. I have personally owned this film on VHS, Laserdisc, don't laugh, DVD, Blu-ray, and most recently the phenomenal 4K version have added many more tens of millions of dollars to its coffers. It is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which aggregates critic reviews at 84%. The film sits at an even higher 92% with the over quarter million user reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. A soundtrack to the movie was released and another live album made in America, which was once again recorded at the Universal Amphitheater, was released in December of 1980. The Blues Brothers did perform live in the Chicago area a second time. That event was during the opening year at the outdoor music venue Poplar Creek in suburban Hoffman Estates on June 27, 1980, as part of the Blues Brothers' Road to Ruin tour. The 7,000 covered area pavilion tickets were $12.50, and you could get one of the 13,000 spots on the lawn for just $8.50. Fun fact, Bob Woodward, who wrote the book Wired about the life of Belushi that became the critically panned box office disaster of the same name, was, like John Belushi, also from Wheaton, Illinois. There is a lot that I didn't get to cover due to time, but if you check out the Chicago History Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, I hope to add more from the Blues Brothers story that didn't make the cut here. Please let me know if you have any questions about anything discussed today. I love to talk about the Blues Brothers. Also, if you have a topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. As always, like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast and tell a friend. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. Thanks for listening.